And now, WBW Theater. Welcome to WBW Theater. Listen to a series of radio dramas, comedies, mysteries, thrillers, westerns, all dedicated to preserving the golden age of radio. Those thrilling days of yesteryear, way back when families gathered together around the living room radio to join the theater of the mind. Listen now as we take you way back when imagination ruled and creativity had no limits. Listen now to WBW Theater. We take you now to England. Well, 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 Mac Nyan. Certainly good to see you, Mac. And it's well to see you, kid. So last time I saw you was in New Haven at the Dartmouth game. Remember? Sure do. That was the day they played that 33 to 33 tie. Say, guess who's over here? Who? Mary Munford. You remember her from Springfield. No kidding. What's she doing here? She's with the Red Cross. Well, what do you know? Tell you who else is over here. You know Jerry Chatterow. Sure, so I'm in Hollywood a couple of months ago. Well, he's with the Air Force. And Bunny Hill used to work for BBDNO. Yeah. She's with the American Embassy. Sure seems like home, doesn't it? Just stand on Piccadilly Circus long enough and you're bound to meet your old school teacher. <laughs> Broadcasting System presents An American in England, the fifth of a limited series of six programs written and directed by Norman Corwin, produced by Edward R. Murrow, and broadcast from somewhere in the British Isles. Joseph Julian narrates, and the original musical score is by Benjamin Britton. Tonight, the Yanks are here. We can't tell you how many hundreds of thousands of Americans there are in this island. But it's going to be the greatest migration of free-fighting men the world has ever seen. Men who have come straight through the Battle of the Atlantic. To Europe's one piece of free soil where free men may still fight for freedom. They came to fight. This is not their final destination. But this isn't just a huge flying field and parade ground. There are people living here. It's their home. Their sons are training alongside our boys. They go on leave together. They speak our language, or near enough. If they can live and fight together, it's a good bet they'll work together when all this has passed away. This is the record. So... on the English Channel across the way from the Barbarians and you listen to an American folk song called Arkansas Traveler it's coming at you over the British radio earlier they were playing records of Guy Lombardo and Fats Waller and the Golden Gate Quartet but now they're playing Arkansas Traveler the tune sets you to some idle wondering how far would an Arkansas traveler have to travel from Arkansas in order to hear the Arkansas traveler over the British radio 
at a point within a Spitfire spitting distance of France? Answer? About 5,000 miles as a bomber flies and considerably farther as a convoy zigzags. It occurs to you that a good many travelers from Arkansas have already made the trip, along with a lot of guns from Bridgeport and tanks from Baton Rouge and oil from Pennsylvania and some fine sides of beef from the packing houses of Chicago. In fact, there's so much that's American on this island. <laughs> As for example, this private United States Army drinking a beer and reading a newspaper. What's funny, soldier? Huh? Oh, well, it mightn't strike you funny unless you're an American. I am an American. Oh, well, then take a look at this. He hands you a copy of a London paper. There's an article entitled... Now, if you meet an American... It offers advice to the British on how to behave should they meet up with an ally from across the big seawater. When you see an American, don't yell, Look, there's an American! at the top of your voice. And if you treat an American to a lot more drinks than he wants, but feels bound to accept out of politeness, don't wax indignant for the rest of your days if he loosens up a bit after the fifth round. Yeah, this is all right. Don't try to tell an American that he ought to pronounce English the way you do. His tongue is closer to the one Shakespeare spoke than yours. Nelson, thank God he had done his duty. Not duty. That was an affectation that caught on after Beau Brummel had started it among the old school tie set of 1810. See the one there about the coffee? You read on. It's a waste of time to try to convince an American that the stuff passing under that name over here is coffee. He knows better. They don't have tea as a meal in America, but if you offer them some, they won't say no. Funny thing about that, the booklet the Army gave us says practically the same thing, only in reverse. What booklet? Oh, haven't you seen it? Booklet to how to get along with the British. He pulls a small pamphlet out of his back pocket and thumbs through its well-worn leaves to page nine. Then he points to a paragraph which reads, The British don't know how to make a good cup of coffee. You don't know how to make a good cup of tea. It's an even swap. You say the Army hands these out? Sure. It's on the cover. On the cover, it says simply, Britain, for all members of the American Expeditionary Forces in Great Britain. Read what it says there about differences. Where? Right there on the same page. You locate it and read. When you find differences between British and American ways of doing things, there is usually a good reason for them. British railways have dinky freight cars, not because they don't know any better. Small cars allow quicker handling of freight at thousands of small stations. Do you mind if I read this through? No, go ahead. There's no military secrets in it. You start, appropriately enough, at the beginning. And there, under the heading of introduction, is a very clear statement of the case. It has the same kind of impact as a good fanfare. <laughs> in Great Britain as part of an Allied offensive to meet Hitler and beat him on his own ground. For the time being, you will be Britain's guest. For the time being. Any connection between this phrase and the jitters shown by Goebbels lately? You read on. America and Britain are allies. 
Hitler knows that they, with the other United Nations, mean his crushing defeat in the end. So, it is only common sense to understand that the first duty Hitler has given his propaganda chiefs is to separate Britain and America and spread distrust between them. If he can do that, his chance of winning might return. The long chance. But the whole history of Hitler has been a long chance. We can defeat Hitler's propaganda with a weapon of our own. Plain, common horse sense. Understanding of evident truths. The most evident truth of all is that in their major ways of life, the British and American people are much alike. They speak the same language. How's that again? They both believe in representative government, freedom of worship, freedom of speech. But each country has minor national characteristics which differ. Schedule, schedule, banana, banana. It is by causing misunderstanding over these minor differences that Hitler hopes to make his propaganda effective. You defeat enemy propaganda not by denying that these differences exist, but by admitting them openly and then trying to understand them. Aha! That puts a finger on one of the things of which the United Nations will be most proud when the history of this war is told. The strategy of truth. We've never had to lie the way the Axis has about our losses and gains. We've never had to contradict ourselves five or six times a day like the maggoty ministers of the Wilhelmstrasse. We've never had to jam the ether so our own people couldn't hear the news. Jamming, by the way, is an Axis monopoly and can be heard all around the dial of an ordinary radio set in England. It sounds like this. That's so the mothers of Berlin won't hear the news that 45,000 Nazis were killed in the newest Russian counteroffensive west of Moscow. That's so the French won't hear that the Yanks in Britain have started bombing operations with flying fortresses over Nazi-held France. Our side doesn't have to jam the axis. Lord Haw Haw can babble all night on the Allied air if he's a mind to. Nobody here or in the States would waste a radio transmitter's time and energy smudging out the bray of a fascist ass. Come to think of it, the axis has very little imagination. If the British wanted to jam anybody, they'd at least do it with sounds appropriate to whoever was being jammed. The jam E. For instance, Hitler. Or a little motif for Bullfrog Mussolini. Say, you're through with the pamphlet, Mac? I gotta be going. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just sort of daydreaming. Thanks for letting me read it. Oh, that's okay. So long, Mac. So long. Take it easy. What a thing to say to an American soldier in this war. Take it easy. You go to an American Red Cross club... You sit in a lounge, waiting for a friend who's in the U.S. Navy. At the piano, a soldier sadly plunking away with one finger. He stops and turns around. <laughs> Somehow it sounds better when Rachmaninoff plays it. That's just what I was thinking. Got a cigarette, bud? Yeah, sure. There you are. 
What's the matter? You look kind of blue. I am blue. Why? I've been here four months and had only two letters from home. Oh, that's tough. Why only two letters? I don't know. Folks must be pretty busy, I guess. Yeah, but still... Yeah, so have I been pretty busy for that matter. But I found time to write. What have you been doing? Oh, I was in on the Dieppe show. You were? How was it? You know, I think I could stand almost anything except not getting any mail from home. A flyer sitting nearby looks up. Sometimes people can be pretty careless when they do write. A friend of mine came back from bombing Abbeville one night, and he finds a letter from his girl saying she don't love him no more. No, that's filthy. Yeah, awful. Certainly is. Cheer up, Lenny. It can't be that bad. If the folks back there only knew how much we depend on their mail, well, they'd write oftener. That's all I can say. Oh, well... You overhear an argument between a lieutenant and a corporal from the States. Ah, you're crazy. Who's crazy? I tell you, they're the most friendly people in the world. Can I referee this match? We're just arguing about hospitality. In my opinion, the... Wait a minute. Listen to this. I was in Datchet one night. You know what? Where's Datchet? On the Thames, just below Windsor Castle. I was doing some sightseeing on my leave. Well, I stopped for the night at this fine old tavern in Datchet, and I ate a terrific meal. Cold salmon. I'm put up in a magnificent room. Well, Queen Elizabeth slept once. Will you let me tell this story? And in the morning, I go downstairs and ask for the bill. And a woman comes over and says she's the proprietor. And she says... Would you mind very much, Lieutenant, if I didn't accept any money from you? So I say, oh, no, I couldn't do that. Thank you very much. Well, I think it's the least I can do to express my personal appreciation... Of all that your country's done and is doing, and I wouldn't... Yes, know... ma'am, that's very good of you, but after all, we're helping ourselves, and it's not just a... Besides, case... you're a long way from home. Well, that's very kind of Please. you, Please. But... It would make me very happy. Well, so what the heck, I put my door away. Now, that's what I call hospitality. Oh, well, for that matter, a conductor on a bus in Birmingham once refused to take my fare. Well, what's the argument here? I thought there was an argument. Well, you see... I think the Scotch are more hospitable than the English. Ah, they're all the same, you dope. What's the difference? They're all British. You watch some American soldiers warming up noisily for a game of baseball in a city park. And there's a gallery of natives looking on with amusement and amazement. The boys are dressed in old sweatshirts, ungarees, polo shirts, great variety of old rags. Some of them have their shirt tails hanging out. This sloppy dress offends a short, middle-aged Englishman standing next to you. Why don't these men wear uniforms? Disgraceful the way they look. And on Sunday, too. Well, don't you understand? They're just playing for fun. They're not giving a public exhibition or anything like that. Well, there are hundreds of games all around Britain today. English boys playing all kinds of sports for the fun of it. You won't find this ragtail appearance. And more well in uniforms of some kind. Well, don't you see, these boys didn't have room to carry baseball uniforms with them. I dare say they had more important equipment to bring over. Yes. Well, you've a point there. 
He concedes that much. But still, he doesn't like the idea of baseball. Frankly, I think it's a childish game. It's, it's half affectation, I believe. Affectation? Why? Well, all that shouting and yelling, the way they throw the ball around to each other every time one of the players gets his hands on it, don't understand it at all. Very childish. But they're not even playing yet. They're just warming up. That's infield practice. You see, the batter there is hitting grounders out to the infield. And they're just... I still say, if you pardon me, it's a very childish game. Very childish. Okay. It's childish. You find that the Yanks and their allies are picking up each other's language and learning each other's customs. This comes from crowding the same pubs, palling around in the airdromes, flying together, bumping into each other in the Strand and Trafalgar Square at country dances. It's not uncommon to hear a Tommy say, What's cooking, old boy? And they also say, How you doing, bud? Okay? Whereas the Yank has adopted such criticisms as, Good show that, you know. And I take a very poor view of that sort of thing, actually. He's also picked up petrol for gas and says underground for subway. And he's learned that circus, as in Piccadilly Circus, is the Latin for circle and not the English for Barnum and Bailey. He's also found that Britain is as full of dialects and accents as his own country. And that what would correspond to the Brooklyn accent in Britain is the London East End. Blimey! Now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. And what would correspond to Midwestern, Iowa, Nebraska, and so forth, would be Midland. Ah, it's champion. He by gum. Now's the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. And the coal miner, the man who lives in the Pennsylvania and Kentucky of Britain, is the Welshman who sounds like this. Indeed to goodness, now is the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. Whereas the way down east farmer of this island calls himself a Geordie. And sounds like this. Ah, Goxman, now's the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. Of course, what would correspond to the Canadian and his maple leaf would be the Scotsman and his thistle. Now's the time for all good men to come to the aid of the party. And there are a lot of other accents and dialects like Yorkshire, Suffolk, Devonshire, and Cornwall. They may have different accents, but they have a single purpose... To come to the aid of all parties interested in beating the Axis. Sure. You drink a ginger beer with a farmer from Buckinghamshire. And he tells you about three American soldiers from Northern Ireland. Well, no. You see, our problem was this. Our wheat crop in Raysbury was so bulky that we couldn't operate the combine harvester. Do you know anything about farming? No, I'm afraid not. Well... This harvester is a machine that cuts and thrashes in one operation. We just got the machines from America, you see. And there aren't many of us farmers here knows how to use them yet. And we were having the very devil of a time trying to get it to work. And finally, do you know what we did? What did you do? Why, we appealed to the American Army for men who were experts at handling this particular machine. And do you know what? What? Why, they sent us three soldiers who were farmers back in the States. Gave them special leave to help us harvest that wheat. How'd they make that? Why, they went through those fields in no time. Do you know how long it took them, on an average, to cut and thrash an acre of wheat? How long? One hour. That's good, huh? Good? Good? 
Why, man, it's a record. I've written to the Minister of Agriculture about it. Well, that's swell. But did you get along all right with the boys? I mean, personally? Personally? Oh, why, the whole village got along with them. We were very sorry to see them go back to camp, I can tell you. And you know something else? What else? They claimed, according oh, to them, that American farmers owe pretty well everything they know about soil conservation to us British farmers. Did you know that, sir? No, I never knew that. Well, neither did I. So one of them said to me when I thanked him, he said, We're only paying you back, he says. We're only paying you back. <laughs> <laughs> You spread out all the London papers, and when you've got them all spread out, they don't equal in size half the normal weekday edition of the New York Times. The paper shortage here isn't a fooling matter. And the biggest papers have to cram the news of the world, of England, of London, into four skimpy pages with pictures. But with all there is to report from the fronts of this busy war, big sections of the press are always being devoted to the subject of America and Americans. The Daily Herald has a lengthy interview with Major General Clark of the U.S. Army and quotes him as saying, We have not come over to sit on our back ends and do nothing. We are here to take the offensive. Another has a five-column layout with a caption, What do Americans think of us? And the subheading, A number of American soldiers in Britain were asked for their candid, undoctored replies to seven questions. The response was completely frank and realistic. The News Chronicle hopes that it will help us to understand them better. The Daily Mail carries a piece on the U.S. Marines under the bold-faced title, Leathernecks. From this British article, you learn for the first time how the Leathernecks got their name. Used to wear leather stocks around their necks to protect them from cutlasses. Goes to show you. The Express has a long illustrated article on Negro soldiers in Britain, in which it reports, In the west of England, the stately mansion has turned to new life. It is home and headquarters for a contingent of American colored troops. At night, Negro choruses float down the lanes as the night pass men come home. And at church parades, English congregations have heard the fervor of Negro spirituals sung by men who live in their songs. They drink in the Rose and Crown, the horse and hounds with the locals, treating and being treated. They go to concerts and cinemas. No place that is open to our own men is barred to them. And they're rather amazed at the friendliness of the entire countryside and the nearest big city. A whole half page of a morning paper is taken up with a script of a transatlantic broadcast called An American in England. There are half a dozen articles every day on these interesting people who live in the 48 states between the Atlantic and Pacific. But not all these articles are admiring. One paper... Observing that milk for the American army is being brought across the Atlantic, breaks into verse. Bouquets to the farmers of Texas, deserving a roll on the drum, whose work on each other must make Hitler shudder and dream of a vengeance to come. Give laurels to warriors hardy for battle and bottle a thirst, who seem to have reckoned the front may be second, but pride of the palate comes first. And... There, I was almost forgetting some stokers and those of that ilk whose blood, sweat, and toil were delivering oil, but now must deliver the milk. 
greatest city thinking the thoughts of an American in England. Here it is, the fourth year of the fight, coming up. Around you are the marks of the struggle. Bomb ruins, air raid shelters, barricades, barrage balloons. Around you are throngs of uniforms of the United Nations, men of the RAF, girls of the ATS. Not around are the 60,000 British men, women, and children killed by Nazi bombs. Not around are the Tommies left on the fields of France, in the Norwegian fjords, in the mountains of Greece, in the jungles of Malaya, on the Isle of Crete, in the waste of Libya, in the Syria and the hills, in the waters of the Arctic, and in the gorges of Ethiopia. No, not around here now. But the Yanks are here. The Canadians are here. The North American delegation to Berlin is swarming over the city. The country, the camps, the aerodromes. They're here for a specific purpose. We have not come over to sit on our back ends and do nothing. We are here to take the offensive. They're young, these Yanks. They're confident. They're well-equipped. They're the highest-paid soldiers in the world. They try not to show off about it. They're likable boys, and they found that the British are likable people. They get used to left-hand traffic in a couple of days and to English speech in a couple of weeks. One American sailor summed it up in a sentence. You can understand what these people mean. They don't say it right. The Yanks have found that simply because an Englishman carries a handkerchief in his sleeve doesn't mean he's a sissy. They found that even though he may pile peas, potatoes, and meat on the back of his fork and poke it into his mouth with his left hand, he's a perfectly nice guy and can often shoot well with both hands. You look at the faces of these British people in London, faces that come from Wales and Scotland and Yorkshire and the banks of the Tyne and the banks of the Severn, And you might as well be looking at Americans on the banks of the Hudson or the Mississippi. There are differences, sure. They don't go to movies, they go to the cinema. They call a druggist a chemist. And you can't buy books and lawnmowers and sun lamps in a chemist shop. They think baseball is childish. You think cricket is dull. So what? So nothing. You walk down busy Oxford Street... And you realize that the mingled British and Americans around you share more than the street in the time of day. They share the hopes and fears and aspirations of the common people of the world. They share the experience of having fought 25 years ago for a Europe that wouldn't bother us anymore. And they share the mistake of having assumed that they could live happily ever after Versailles each on his own island, and to hell with the Chinese and the Jews and the Czechs and the Spaniards. These war-worn people passing you on Tottenham Court Road know us Americans better than any Englishman before them. One of them said only yesterday, It's taken this war to make us see that Americans aren't all gangsters or people who drive fast cars. 
that live in great estates with no visible means of income. There are most of them small-town boys who haven't seen any more bright lights or big city life than our boys from Lincolnshire or the West Riding. They work with their hands and they fight with their hands, the way we do. You walk down Charing Cross Road and you think of the American soldier who told the Raysbury farmer he was only paying him back when he worked for him. And it comes to you at Leicester Square that for the first time since Adam, a common enemy has made common friends of the common man in all quarters of the globe. All the way from Brazil to Moscow, from China to the Cape of Good Hope. The Yanks stop off in England. The Dutch Queen addresses congressmen in Washington. Boys from Brooklyn hold the beach at Tulagi. The government of Mexico renames a town Lidici to perpetuate the memory of miners murdered by Germans in Czechoslovakia. You pull up at a statue in front of the National Gallery. It's a statue of George Washington. It's been there for some years. to the Columbia Broadcasting System's presentation of The Yanks Are Here, the fifth of a limited series of six programs under the title of An American in England, written and directed by Norman Cohen and brought to you by CBS direct from England through the facilities of the British Broadcasting Corporation. Joseph Julian narrated and the original musical score was composed by Benjamin Britten and performed by the orchestra of the Royal Air Force under the baton of Wing Commander R.P. O'Donnell. The program was produced by Edward R. Murrow. Your announcer was John Snag. We return you now to New York. An American in England will be heard next Monday, one hour earlier, at 9 p.m. Eastern Wartime. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Join us again as we bring you exciting thrills and adventure, rip-roaring comedy, and shoot-'em-up westerns and gangbusters. Next time, when your imaginations will be invited into the theater of the mind with WBW Theater.